Welcome to the new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live. On WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. It's always a great event for any orchestra to have the opportunity to play Beethoven's monumental Eroica Symphony, one of the most transformational works in all of music history. And it's always a question as to what you can possibly put before the Eroica that makes sense as a first half. I thought it would be a lovely idea to start with a piece by a composer who was essentially Beethoven's contemporary, the great Italian composer Gioacchino Rossini, who held the stage in Vienna for many of the years that Beethoven was a resident there. In fact, I think there was a little bit of gnawing uh, jealousy on the part of Beethoven, because certainly in the 1810s, when Beethoven was not quite as prolific as he had been in the first decade of the century, nor as he would be a decade later, uh, it was Rossini who was the most talked about composer in Vienna. His operas held the stage at the Vienna Court Opera, and everyone was singing his tunes. He was quite a, a huge international figure, and very much based in Vienna, although of course he was Italian in those years from about 1810 or so on. So this is a charming little overture by Rossini to open our program. It's an overture called La Scala di Setta, The Silken Ladder. It's uh, one of his lighter, more charming comedies. And this overture happens to feature perhaps the most devilish oboe solo of the 19th century. It's a, a solo that oboists practice their whole lives long to play. And we're very fortunate to have a brilliant principal oboist, Karen Hosmer, who has been with the orchestra for many years and who plays it quite brilliantly. Uh, and it's always kind of interesting to hear Rossini near in close proximity to Beethoven because even though their uh, worldviews were entirely different and their musics occupy rather different spaces, Rossini was perfectly happy to steal certain Beethovenian gestures from the master, Beethoven less so with Rossini. So here now is a charming little comic overture by Gioacchino Rossini, La Scala di Setta. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was the opening work on the Albany Symphony's program. Uh, it was Rossini's overture, La Scala di Setta. The oboe solo was played by our brilliant principal oboist, Karen Hosmer, and the orchestra, of course, was the Albany Symphony, with me, David Allen Miller, conducting. Next on the program, a kind of exciting departure for us, a guitar concerto that was commissioned from the American composer Robert Beezer. Bob Beezer is a very well-known and respected composer in the United States. He's the chairman of the uh, composition department at the Juilliard School, and he's also the artistic director of the American Composers Orchestra, a fabulous orchestra that's been in New York City for many, many years and that exists solely to champion the works of American composers, something that's very close to the Albany Symphony's heart and to my heart as well. 
I was approached by Bob about a year and a half ago about this guitar concerto that he's been wanting to write for many, many years for one of his oldest, dearest friends, Elliot Fisk. Elliot Fisk, of course, is an absolutely legendary guitarist. Uh, he was Segovia's last student, and uh, he's one of the greatest guitarists walking the planet today. Uh, he has homes in Boston, uh, where he teaches at the New England Conservatory. He also has a home in Salzburg, where he's been for many years a professor at the Mozarteum. He's lived in Germany and Austria for much of his life, and he also has a home in Granada, in Spain, where he spends a great deal of time. He's truly a multicultural gentleman, lives very comfortably in these three cultures and more, extremely multilingual and uh, intellectually voracious. He's a fascinating, wonderful figure, and it's the first time that Elliot's played with the Albany Symphony and the first time I had the great pleasure to work with him, and he's just a delightful, wonderful man. Uh, As I mentioned, he and Bob are old, old friends and met, I think, when they were both freshmen at Yale some years ago and uh, became very much involved with each other's music. So it was really Elliot who taught Bob about writing for the guitar, and Bob has written a number of pieces, particularly solo pieces, for Elliot. And he's been promising for, lo, these 30 or so years to write Elliot a concerto. And so when Bob approached me, he had also talked to the American Composers Orchestra, with which, of course, he's closely affiliated, as well as to Dennis Russell Davies Orchestra in Germany about a three-way commission, and I was delighted to be part of it. So this is a work that's a part of a consortium commission, Fortunately, we were the first orchestra to play the piece. Unfortunately, Bob was unable to um, complete the third movement. So what we have on this performance is the first two movements. Now, since the second movement, of course, is a very slow, uh, introspective, atmospheric movement, and the first movement is a much more motoric, exciting, fanfare-like kind of movement, we're actually playing the pieces on this concert because of that uh, fact that the third movement doesn't yet exist in reverse order. So what you'll hear is first the second movement, the slow atmospheric movement, which owes a great deal to French Baroque music, particularly to to Couperin as well as to one of Bob Beezer's heroes, Ravel. It's a beautiful kind of cortege, a lovely, almost a a march for the solo guitar uh, with very minimal orchestral accompaniment. And then the middle section, there's kind of an atmospheric, what, what Bartok liked to call night music section, and then the beautiful cortege returns at the end. So that's the slow movement, and then that's followed by a very lively and uh, extremely virtuosic first movement, fast movement. So here now, two movements from Bob Beezer's brand new guitar concerto for Elliot Fisk. Elliot Fisk, of course, is the soloist. I should mention also that one of the great challenges of writing for the guitar is that um, you know the guitar, being a plucked instrument, does not sustain sound. In that sense, it's a little bit like a piano, only even more so. Whereas with orchestral string instruments, we use our bows to make a sustained, connected sound, and the winds use their wind stream to make a connected sound. The guitar never can really make a connected sound because the minute you pluck a string or a note, it immediately begins to decay. So this creates a sort of challenge orchestrally for any composer, and perhaps the reason why there are so few standard repertoire guitar concertos, the famous Rodrigo, Concierto de Aranjo is being the most famous example, but there really aren't that many in the repertoire, I think partly because it's a very tricky instrument to write for. It's also a rather soft instrument by orchestral standards, and so the challenge of not covering the guitar is a very big part of it. So here, once again, the world premiere of Movements 1 and 2, or 2 and 1, of Bob Beezer's new guitar concerto for Elliot Fisk. Elliot Fisk is the guitarist. The Albany Symphony is conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast. Only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. Of the handful of works that transformed music history, for my money, certainly in the world of orchestral writing, the most radical work is none other than Beethoven's Eroica Symphony. 
certainly other works like Symphony Fantastique by Berlioz or Stravinsky's Rite of Spring created pandemonium when they were premiered and ushered in whole new eras in music. But I think no single work, certainly in orchestral history, had a more profound, transformative effect on the evolution of music history and all the music that came after it than did Beethoven's Eroica Symphony. As to whether it's his most important work or his greatest symphony, that's another kind of discussion. But certainly in terms of looking at the the trajectory of history, this piece really just had an unbelievable electrifying effect on the time and on the trajectory of music. Why did it do that? Well, first of all, it it really was a a music unlike any that had ever been heard before. When you think of the symphonies that had preceded the Eroica, including Beethoven's first two symphonies, they all sort of come from this very beautiful, elegant, structured, balanced, post-Enlightenment world where particularly in the works of Haydn and Mozart, which, of course, had certain unusual and and arresting and spectacular effects that occurred in them, always those two composers were working within the the framework or the constructs of the predominant style of the period. So when Haydn does an arresting thing or a comical thing or a witty thing, it's always a play against what the expectations are of his public. Whereas in the case of the Eroica Symphony, Beethoven, in essence, tears down that entire world of balance and structure and beauty and elegance and refinement and humor, uh, and he, he builds a whole new kind of music, a music that's unlike anything that had been experienced before. This work, which was, which was written in 1803 and 1804 at the height of Napoleon's power, Napoleon had become a great general and was just in the process of declaring himself emperor, This work, like Napoleon in the political arena, ushers in a whole new kind of of music world. For one thing, the Eroica Symphony is probably more than twice as long as any symphony that had preceded it. The first movement is this monumental structure, and the whole piece lasts for almost 50 minutes, depending on who's conducting it. It sometimes lasts for an hour and 50 minutes. Uh, In my version, I think it's pretty close to 50 minutes. It's a work that just in terms of the scope of it, it's bigger, grander, more dramatic than anything that had ever been written. Uh, Also, it has a lot of programmatic elements that had never really been considered as symphonic prior to Beethoven's creation of the Eroica. Is it about Napoleon? Yes. Is it about a more generalized idea? of a great hero striding across the planet? Yes. Is it autobiographical, being really about Beethoven and his own struggles with deafness, uh, with his art? Absolutely yes. Is it one of the greatest works of, of purely abstract music, just in the way it's developed architecturally and structurally? Absolutely yes. It's in fact all these things, and of course, like so much great art, it, it defies very, very close interpretation. There have been many, many tomes written uh, describing how, in fact, the piece is directly about Napoleon or the trajectory of his life and the second movement being a funeral march about the the great hero's funeral. But if, in fact, he has his funeral in the second movement, what happens in the third movement? There are very concrete analyses of the piece, all of which, frankly, I find a little bit flawed or perhaps sometimes deeply flawed, because the piece, like so much great art, exists kind of beyond interpretation. You can interpret it forever, and one should study it and wrestle with it and dream about it, but the beauty of it is that everybody takes his or her own interpretation away about the piece. There is no doubt, however, that Beethoven was very much inspired by the idea of the mythic Napoleonic figure. And it's also very obvious, I think, that 
there is a great deal of tone painting in the piece as to how concrete it is. That's really for the listener to decide. It seems to me, after having worked through the piece and performed the piece a number of times, that the first movement is, in essence, kind of a, a picture, a very abstract picture of a battle uh, with this incredible monumental climax in the middle that perhaps is the death of a, of a, of a comrade or who knows what it may be. But it's, it's built to be this, this movement of unbelievable struggle. The second movement, of course, is, as Beethoven labels it, a funeral march. But is it the funeral of the hero, or is it the funeral of a close friend at which he expresses his grief, or is it about his own struggle with mortality, or is it just a more generalized idea about 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 death in battle? That's really, again, for the listener to decide. Um, but there's no doubt that within the second movement, there is great pain and suffering and 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 struggling against death. The third movement, um, very difficult to uh, assess in terms of what exactly Beethoven is painting tonally. Certainly in the, the trio, the middle section of the third movement, there are those great hunting horns. In fact, it's curious that the Eroica, even though Beethoven is completely exploding the form of the symphony and writing a bigger, grander, more dramatic symphony than ever, only increases the size of the standard orchestra at the time by one French horn. It's still Beethoven and Mozart's orchestra, timpani, no additional percussion. Uh, It's a rather small, dare I say, limited orchestra for what Beethoven is trying to do dramatically. Third movement, rather abstract. Some uh, analysts say it perhaps is about the soldiers relaxing and enjoying themselves after battle, or it could be about battle itself, or it could be just a, a witty, fun movement. The last movement, the most perplexing of all, this incredible set of theme and variations on a, a theme that Beethoven had used a number of times before in, in The Creatures of Prometheus Ballet and then in his Opus 35 piano variations, uh, that famous... The most compelling interpretations I've read sort of suggest that maybe this is kind of the the culmination of the wise ruler and the sane society that Beethoven so much cared about and and subscribed to, that after battle and after war and after uh, chaos and tumult, that that one works to try to find some peace and glory and goodness in society or in leadership or whatever it may be. At the same time, one can listen to the Eroica in completely abstract terms and have a fabulous time with it. Needless to say, it is uh, one of those works that exists on countless levels and can be analyzed and interpreted and reinterpreted limitlessly and at a certain level is entirely beyond our ability to express what it's about in words. However, what I find so dramatic about the Eroica is that really in this one monumental utterance, Beethoven essentially blew the entire roof off of the classical period and did usher in uh, the possibility of this romantic, very subjective era that followed him and that followed this work. If you remember, uh, in about 1802, Beethoven wrote that very famous letter, the Heiligenstadt Testament. Uh, He realized that he was going deaf, and of course that was a great, great tragedy for anyone to experience, particularly for a a composer who relied on his connection to the world and to the world of sound. He wrote this very hyperdramatic letter, the Heiligenstadt Testament, in which he really ponders whether in fact he should choose suicide or whether he should in fact go on. Uh, Concurrently, uh, or a little bit earlier, he also had written in a letter that he was going to pursue a new path in his music. And in fact, I think this is the work more than any other that points to that new path, to this more subjective, more personal kind of utterance than was common in the era that preceded him. And indeed, you know, the last point about this symphony is it is 
in some ways very much inextricably linked to the character of Napoleon. And Beethoven, as far as I can gather, had very ambivalent views about Napoleon. On the one hand, he revered his incredible prowess as a, a general and as a leader of men and as a conqueror. On the other hand, he was deeply affronted when Napoleon declared himself emperor. Here he had been this figure of democratic change, and then he essentially sold out. And yet even after that point, Beethoven still kind of was very much impressed by the the mythic idea of Napoleon. And so as to how much of that is in the piece, I would say a lot of it is. I think the piece really did, was intended to be a Napoleon symphony. And certainly in the original version, it said on the title page, Napoleon on the top and Beethoven on the bottom. And that was the page that was ripped out when Beethoven heard that Napoleon had declared himself emperor. So Beethoven really embraced this idea of the mythic leader general and in essence, I think, was trying to express that at some level in this symphony. It is such an astounding journey that one takes through the Eroica Symphony. It's a a real journey piece unlike any piece before it and most pieces after it. You may notice if you're used to an older performance, if there's one you grew up with by Wilhelm Furtwängler, the great German conductor, or by Otto Klemper, or by Bruno Walter, or someone from that Germanic school of the 1930s, 40s, 50s, that my metronome marks, my tempos, are extremely fast in relation to those performances. In my defense, I must say that they're not really my metronome marks, my tempos at all. Beethoven, in 1817, went back through all of his symphonies, and with the help of this new tool that his friend Melzel had invented called a metronome, he assigned general tempos to all the movements of his symphonies. Now, of course, as you may have heard, when these metronome marks really started to be taken seriously about 25, 35 years ago, many people said, well, those those metronome marks are completely insane. They're so fast. They're unplayable. Beethoven's metronome must have been broken. Or Beethoven heard, you know, had such terrible hearing that he couldn't imagine the right tempos. Well, the truth is that now that these faster tempi have become much more the norm than the exception, it's clear to all of us in the perform well, I shouldn't say to all of us, it's clear to, it's clear to many of us performers that these are fantastic tempos that Beethoven gave us. We shouldn't be slavish to the tempos, but they really cast these works in the world of the classical style. They sound much closer to the way Haydn and Mozart are performed and have been performed because they occupy a world very close to that world. Haydn was still very much alive and had five more productive years to go at the time that the Eroica was was first performed. So Beethoven's still writing within that style. And the reason that this slower, more monumental approach to Beethoven got going in the first place is really thanks to none other than Richard Wagner, who was a huge advocate of the Beethoven symphonies, but not surprisingly, being Richard Wagner, believed that the best way for the Beethoven symphonies to sound good was if they sounded just like Richard Wagner. So he completely disregarded all of the tempos that Beethoven had given us and created his own much broader, slower, monumental uh, tempos and also insisted that these pieces be played with very large orchestra. And it was that style that really was handed down to the 20th century conductors with the the rare exception of Arturo Toscanini, who, who, as you know, insisted on fast tempos for most everything. Uh, He tended to buck that trend, but all the German school, many great, great conductors, all the way from Furtwängler through Bernstein, really, kind of embraced these slower, more monumental tempi, which, frankly, I feel just don't do justice to the to the meaning or the style of the pieces and of their era. So you'll hear a very, uh, I hope, authentic performance practice-informed 
performance. It's done by a chamber orchestra of about 45 musicians, which would have been about the size that Beethoven would have expected, but a very small cello and bass section, three cellos and two basses, and uh, a percussionist, a timpanist, playing very uh, playing drums with very hard sticks, giving it a very a drum-like stylistic sound. So here now, the Albany Symphony playing Beethoven's Eroica Symphony, the third symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live. On WMHT-FM, your classical companion.